Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi. <laughs> yeah. So um, I gave you a choice a minute ago that we could either record this podcast or commit suicide. And it felt like a dramatic choice, like a very. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, the philosophers say to commit, that's the real question. Whether we're going to choose to live or not. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there is something already in play that is uh, moral suicide. You know, there's a, there's a moral suicide that's happening right now. Well, say some more about that. What do you mean? About our country or? Yeah, I think particularly about our country. And it, it's very likely, if not probable, that it's happening in other places too. Um, but there's a kind of major moral suicide that's happening right now and that I think we're so much more willing to protect or say we protect individual choices and livelihoods and freedoms over this idea of the collective good and, and an ethical society never prizes the individual over the collective you know so there's there's a there's a moral suicide that's happening right now so um we tend to think that we are bracketed with gun violence by Buffalo and Uvalde at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, before we started recording, I told you that I had heard last night on a news source that over the Memorial Day weekend, there had been 16 mass shootings. Yeah. ...ported on widely because... We've become numb, honestly. Yeah. Oh, this one's not as bad as the last one, so it doesn't need to be reported on. I think I told you that my son said uh, about a shooting that was down the street from us at the high school. He said, oh, well, at least only one person got shot. My child. So even my children are kind of learning to blanket this response, you know? Mm -hmm. What were you gonna say, mm -hmm. sorry. I um, I have been I have started reading a book called The End of Democracy, mm. which is uh, for me thinking the unthinkable. Because mm. when I was growing up as a child in this country, I thought and believed that the United States is invincible. But the author of this book, whom I'm not able to tell you his name at the moment, uh, said that the United States is like a middle-aged person. And in middle age, a couple of things happen. Some people have midlife crises, which cause them to go off the rails. I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think men are more prone to midlife crises than women. Mm. I think, I don't have any evidence for that at all. And um, so one of the things is that people can have midlife crises. Then the other thing that should begin to happen in midlife is that we really become acquainted with our own mortality. Yeah. And um, 
not that we become obsessed with it, but we become aware of the fact that we're not going to last forever. And the author of this book says the same thing could apply to a country that has lived as long as ours has and is clearly, clearly, clearly in a crisis, that we should be aware that we've gone off the rails, no question about that, and, and that maybe this is close to the end for us. We need to be aware that democracies don't last forever and um, we can have the appropriate sadness that we do about anybody's mortality or anybody's death, but embrace the fact that it is inevitable and something else follows. Mm. Well, I mean, that very Buddhist sentiment of everything arises and everything falls away applies to systems too. Um, and there is, you know, there is a certain death that I think we have to mourn. Uh, I, I think, you know, kind of, you know, I started by saying we're committing moral suicide, but there's, um, we as a country in general aren't, we have no idea how to do death. And so the, the tendency, this, and I'm speaking broadly and generally here, is to cling when a, when a shift happens. I, I think what, uh, what I'm seeing, and I'm seeing this on so many levels. I'm seeing it in our class. I'm seeing it in our church. I'm seeing it in our country. I'm seeing it in, you know, in our state that when, when things begin to fall away, people cling and hold on. And that clinging is not offering spaciousness at all. It's, it's a real fear of a kind of death, be it actual or metaphorical. And um, I have a lot of really big sadness about that right now. And yeah. Will you uh, tolerate my reading two paragraphs written by one of my favorite political commentators? His name is William Falk. Sure, yeah. Schools, churches, synagogues, supermarkets. The victims of the last massacre in Buffalo were still being buried this week when another disaffected young man armed with an assault weapon, slaughtered 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas. So far this year, the broken nation is averaging 10 mass shootings of four more people every week. Yeah. The same country recently passed 1 million COVID deaths, far more than any other nation. Tens of millions of people believe the 2020 election was stolen and democracy itself stands on crumbling ground. Sharply conflicting abortion laws will inflame the rancor between blue and red states. Even the supposedly nonpartisan Supreme Court is split along the seams with justices openly expressing corn, scorn and suspicion of enemy factions. These are all symptoms of an underlying metatastic disease, a lack of trust. The reason Australia had a per capita COVID death rate one-tenth of ours, the New York Times recently reported, is that Australians trusted their scientists, their government, and each other, while Americans emphatically did not. Americans cannot trust that our kids will go to school without being shot. We can't trust people to wear masks in pandemic because so many insist they have the right to infect others. <laughs> 
we can't pass sensible gun safety laws because some people passionately believe they need weapons of war to defend themselves against government tyranny. Many Americans no longer trust organized religion, corporations, capitalism, their employers, or the media. We do not share a common set of values and facts. We have self-sorted and retreated into our own world, our own website, social media feeds, cable networks, and communities. Separated by impenetrable walls of tribal loyalty, we cannot come together to solve our problems, even when they are killing us. Thoughts and prayers. Hmm. That was written by William Falk, a man whose writing I look forward to reading every week when he has a commentary on what's going on in American culture. And, um, you know, there's two parts of me, Holly, the, the, the part of me that we have talked about that feels hopeless yeah. about this, and the part of me that says that nonetheless, uh, we have to keep doing our work yeah. and focus on love and compassion for ourselves and other people in, in spite of the fact that we're trying to learn to swim during a flood. Yeah, I mean, I think when I say everyone tends to cling, pull inward in times like this, I think that even means the thoughtful ones because that, of that sense of hopelessness. Well, all I can do is focus on my daily acts of loving kindness and compassion that I can focus on how I love my family how I love my neighbors. And, um, you know, there's this sense of living small, a sense that what we do on the large scale won't matter, even if on some cosmic level, we know it does, you know, Howard Thurman, one of my favorite sort of mystics, social justice activists, a teacher to Martin Luther King tells this story about, um, when he was a little boy, he comes upon a 70 or 80 year old man planting a pecan tree. And that pecan tree wouldn't bear fruit for decades. And he says to the old man, why are you planting that tree? You'll never see it flower. And the old man says, well, I've been eating from trees I didn't plant my whole life. And I guess that's what kind of you ask, okay, do you want to commit suicide or keep going? It's, it's, uh, that's what keeps me going is... We are always planting seeds that people will eat from generations from now. I think where I'm feeling less hopeful is what, what these future generations are inheriting. You know, what my kids are inheriting is, is a mess. Well, what they're inheriting is from you and Josh also, yeah. great values and models and all of that about injustice and um so your your kids are living in a context where they're seeing both of those things which means they're gonna they have to learn how to hold that tension pretty early on you know i already see my my kids grappling with some of those things so yeah i i, I wonder and i want to come back to this because i think this is really important but i i wonder about the two young men who have most recently received notoriety about these killings in Buffalo and Uvalde, 18 years old. I wonder about how they grew up. I wonder what happened in their 
the, the value lessons that they learned, surely as infants, they were loved and cherished and nurtured, I'm assuming, and what happened that they went so afar, and why was it that even though both of them posted media posts about what they were going to do, nobody reported this to authorities to say, hey, red flag, we need to stop this. It didn't happen. Well, we live in a really permissive culture in that way. You know, that's that, you know, the uh, freedom of speech, which I heartily believe in, you know, but there's a clause in freedom of speech that if it does harm to a, to another, it's not freedom, right? It, it's dangerous. And I think that we have sort of lost our way about freedom. And, you know, I, I, I think we wouldn't have to look far, you know, these two young men could have had, you know, they say about parents that you just have to be good enough. Like you just got to be good enough, which means about 70% good, like just passing. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we hope we're doing slightly better than that, but most of us are probably doing good enough. And these two kids could have had good enough upbringings, but the fact is we don't have to look far to see, well, what, where did they go wrong? There's so many other places. There's so many other things that raise our children these days. You know, there's, there's the immediacy of media. There's the immediacy of information that we, that so many people my age and older don't know how to put a filter on. We don't know how to keep that stuff from popping up on our cell phones or on our kids' cell phones, or, you know, there's a whole other world that our kids can get engaged in without us knowing, you know, and, and that is through technology, through media, through their social lives. There's, there's a whole other world that our kids can get engaged in. And, it, and if we're at all checked out as parents, we can miss it. You know, one of the things that I think, I think you hit on something that's really, really important. One of the major things that's changed in my lifetime, um, that, and, and let me just put a parenthesis here. I, I have been invited to give a major talk for Ethos Group um, later in the fall. It's not something that I have been accepting recently to do outside things, but um, I love Robert Hilliger and he's asked me to do this. And so we're gonna have a meeting about it. And I've started writing on it. And my first line is I'm 85. And um, two of the major things that I think I have seen that it's shaped the culture in which we live. One is the dramatic increase in electronic communications, media, email, cable networks, all of that sort of stuff that were not available. And the second thing is the disparity in income. Mm. We are creating a culture and a world where more and more people are being left out and behind. Mm -hmm. an economic line of survivability and they're angry about it and hopeless yeah. Yeah. and angry and hopeless people erupt well there is that you know there's what and what's on even undergirding that the economic inequity is probably a sense of belonging there are countries that are much poorer than ours that don't have this issue with gun violence that don't have this issue with with racial violence you know and 
and I, I and I, I don't want to idealize or be nostalgic about any country that I've just been a visitor to, but I, I think about a place like Bolivia, very poor. And yet there's this sense that like, there's this sense of interdependence, you know, this sense, uh, at least in the sort of villages where, where, where I was of, of, of interdependence, you need something, I might have what you need. Later on, you might have something that I need. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that poverty begets violence automatically. I think it can beget more compassion and it can beget more interdependence. But what we're seeing is this um, sense of belonging on a larger scale that's been erupted or disrupted. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right that, you know, what, what we have built this country on is this sense of competition, <clears throat> not compassion. Mm-hmm. And we're paying a price for that. Yeah. I mean, we had, we had that, yeah, the, the first sort of cry of the establishment of colonial America was it's, it's our city on the hill. It's, it's our destiny to plunder and to plow through this land and to take whatever we want. This is our destiny. And by our, I mean the white European settlers who came. Right. right. We um, watched the two-part documentary on HBO about George Carlin. Mm. And um, I've always appreciated George Carlin as a really brilliant linguist. I've loved his play on words and things that he's done about football and baseball and the Ten Commandments and a variety mm-hmm. of things. Carlin was a brilliant social critic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a brilliant social critic. And if you just look at the second part of the documentary, he predicted where we are today 20 years ago. Mm. It's just really stunning because he said what the institutions that we're creating don't communicate compassion and care toward yeah. people. And that seems to be the truth. Yeah. If there's not money in it, we're not really much interested in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've created a culture where we sort of worship two things. One is uh, money and the other is weaponry. Power. Yeah. yeah. Both give access to power. So it may be that the power is sitting at the top of that. I don't know. Um, you know, you've been talking so much. Uh, and you know, I've made my way through both of those books too, the Sanford book and the Spong book around the Gospels of John. And you've been talking about the one of the blind man seeing. And I don't know if you've thought about that passage from, from Terre de Chardin at all. It's the very beginning of his book, The Phenomenon of Man, in which he talks about seeing as an evolutionary process, right? And it, it, it's, it's probably one of his most powerful passages that I've read and it's like the first page of a book so if you don't read past the first page you will have gotten something pretty profound (laughs) but he writes um, this work may be summed up as an attempt to see and to make others see what happens to man and what conclusions are forced upon us when he is placed fairly and squarely within the framework of phenomenon and appearance why should we want to see and why in particular should we single out man or human as our object Seeing, we might say that the whole of life lies in that verb, if not ultimately, at least essentially. 
Fuller being is closer union, such as the kernel in the conclusion of this book, but let us emphasize this point that union increases only through an increase in consciousness, which is to say vision. You know, Teilhard really spent a lot of time talking about this idea of unity and diversity. And this evolution of seeing both with our eyeballs and with our minds, with our inner eye, this biological and consciousness evolution he wrote about it as if it were simultaneous. And I, I keep wondering, what would Tear write today? <laughs> you know, I mean, he wrote some of this after living through World War I and World War II, some pretty horrific times in history, and still maintained that evolution of consciousness went through these periods of, um, of despair, kind of almost spiral-like, right? Like we're backsliding on that spiral to come to this next place. And, and you know, we're way back here on the edge of the spiral, the backsliding of the spiral. But I still wonder what would Teilhard say today about seeing? Would he shake his head in despair and say, oh man, this is not where I thought this was going? Or would he say, no, this is just another groaning, another growing pain of consciousness? I, I don't know. I don't have this hope that as a collective body, we're becoming more conscious. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I just had this thought, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the thing that you, you bring more expertise to the table on than I do, but we humans are evolution becoming conscious of itself. Is that how you put it? Yeah. That's one way uh, to say that, right? Yeah. And, and, and isn't it possible? Isn't cancer a form of growth that's just gotten out of control? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe we've become cancerous. Yeah. Well, that's also a theory, right? <laughs> um, and, and, it, and if we zoom way out just past the human, we're, you know, we're just this little species on this little planet in this whole grand infinite space <laughs> time idea. Um, we could easily, we could be a cancerous planet, you know, who knows, but, uh, but we also can't. Or we place... could be the cancer on the planet. Yeah. W which means our planet itself becomes cancerous to the, to the whole, right? Mm. There is always chaos in the cosmos. There was always destruction in the chaos and in, in the, in the cosmos. And in fact, the cosmos depends on a certain amount of chaos in order to keep persisting. If everything just went still, they would die. It would literally fall apart. This, this, this cosmos can't handle stillness because energy is constantly in motion, right? And we too are energy in motion. And I, and I don't know where, you know, free will or, or nature comes into this, but like that our, we are in a heightened chaotic stage right now. And chaos leads to two things. It leads to more creativity and it also leads to more destruction. So something will come beyond. It's the, the matter. The question is what, you know, will it be a different, bolder, better form of the human being? Or are we just the chaos before the creation of something else? I don't know. I have been watching uh, like four episodes on Apple TV of Prehistoric Planet with <laughs> David Attenborough. Have you seen it? My kids have been watching it. Yeah. 
it's amazing what mm -hmm. they can do with computer generated computer generated graphics or CGI. however they do yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> however they do that. It's just yeah. amazing. And it's also amazing what the paleontologists and the archaeologists know mm -hmm. about things that used to be. So I have a question. Mm -hmm. There used to be this huge variety of what we call dinosaurs. There was a bigger variety than I knew. Yeah. And then the theory is a meteor hits the earth and the earth goes dark for thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. Everything dies except roaches <laughs> and, <laughs> and a few other things, right? Yeah. And then after a while, the earth writes itself and things begin to clear and new life forms. Mm -hmm. And then we have the historic period that begins to develop, right? So we have on the historic period, we have all these creatures that eventually evolve like really weird creatures like the rhinoceros and the hippopotamus <laughs> and the yeah. elephant and the giraffe. I uh -huh. mean, really some bizarre creatures. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we get any more dinosaurs? Well, everything has a sort of an ev evolutionary time, I think, right? Like a carbon. So what remained was cockroaches and carbon, right? And carbon is like the blockchain of life, right? But what also happened was temperature changed. So, so temperature is a big part of, of life, of what kind of life can form in any given place, right? Um, you know, in landscape changes. So if dinosaurs were as huge as we think that they were, they required a lot of sustenance. <laughs> yeah, and so if there wasn't enough plant life to sustain them after this great meteor, then they were eventually going to die off and whatever ash was left, whatever carbon chain was left had to form smaller life forms that smaller plants, smaller amounts of plants could sustain, you know? So one all of the of dinosaurs, that, yeah. one of the dinosaurs in the series ate two tons of foliage a day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's the greatest creature we have on earth? It's the elephant, right? And, that, and an elephant needs so much sustenance. Why are elephants dying out? Because the plants that they have access to are being inhabited, are being torn down, you know? So that will, either that or elephants will evolve to be smaller and need less food. That's what's happened over time to many, many creatures. They've, they've become, they've adapted and become smaller. So this weekend is my first granddaughter's 21st birthday. Oh my goodness. That's yeah, a big milestone. I think yeah. it's amazing at the time. I was talking to her mom and they're going to do a family thing because my first granddaughter was born on her father's birthday. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a birthday that they share together. So the whole family is going out to kind of do something. And then mother and daughter are going to have a mother-daughter trip. Yeah. And one of the things they're doing is going to an elephant sanctuary. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah. Did you know there's an elephant sanctuary in Texas? Yes. No, in I knew Texas. there was one in Georgia, but I didn't know there was one in Texas. It is well, near get me there now. <laughs> I know you love elephants, Chloe. Yeah. In Kerrville, Texas, and I can teach you information about it because yeah. I think that would be a cool thing for them oh, to do. My it's gosh. hard for me to believe that that little infant child is 21 yeah yeah it is. And you know I, I i haven't had a conversation with either of my grandchildren uh because it simply hasn't presented itself for me to do yet but i will um probably this month 
when we get together for either the family celebration of their birthdays or for Father's Day. And I'm going to ask them kind of how they feel and what they view about yeah. things. They're both in universities and I, I don't know whether all this is on their radar or whether they become so acclimated to what our culture is that it's just what is for them. I mm -hmm. don't know. Well, either way, something's up, right? It's either that acclimation that it, that that necessitates denial of some kind, or it's like what I'm feeling is this just constant low-level anxiety about how things are, um, or we give in to that, and and that's and where we become fearful, we become reactive, we become afraid to leave the house, you know. Um, so I imagine that most people are somewhere between denial and low-level anxiety. <laughs> I do not mean to put you on the spot, but I'm about to put you on it's the okay. spot. It's <laughs> okay. Have you started reading Jan Phillips? I have not, no. Holly, I'm going to get her to come to Houston. Okay. Last time you said that, your life was changed. My what? Last time you said that, your life was changed. Yep. By Ilya Delio. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jen, Jen Phillips is uh, in that category. Um, I found out about her through Michael Morewood, who, was, mm -hmm. uh, who came through town and visited with us, and he told me about her. I've just not reached out to her, but she grew up in a really strong Irish Roman Catholic family. Mm -hmm. And when she was like in grammar school, knew that she wanted to be a nun. <laughs> she also knew, but didn't know what to do with the knowledge that she knew that she was gay. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so she was, she entered the nunnery, the cloister, whatever, the convent, when she was um, 16, 17 years old and stayed until right before taking vows and they kicked her out. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, she's written a mm -hmm. number of books. She's a poet. She's a photographer. She is a songwriter, and she wrote this book called Still on Fire, mm -hmm. which is her autobiography of growing up in the Catholic Church and feeling unwelcome, mm -hmm. extruded, hurt by that, and yet still having this passion to um, fight for peace and justice. Mm -hmm. And so she's been all around the world doing her discovery work. And the book, Still on Fire, is really worth people's reading. It's just, we'll show you the experience of somebody who, in spite of every reason to give up, didn't. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we need that voice today. Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I also, you know, yes, and also need to learn to be with the wounds in a new way. You know what I mean? Like we've got to learn to persist through that process so that we can stay still on fire so that as Teilhard says, we can learn to see. So what is the other piece that we need is, is someone or some voice of guiding us through a process of being with the wounds in a new way and not so quickly trying to bypass them. Well, the voice that I am going to turn to 
for a little while is John of the Cross mm -hmm. in the Christian tradition and see if we can mind what it means to truly step into the dark night of the soul. We're already there. We're we don't have it. to step into yeah. it. We just need yeah. to be uh, aware that that's where we are. Yeah. Things are dark. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I keep yeah. coming back. I know I've, I know I've told the story so many times people are getting tired of hearing it. But, you know, I, I keep coming back to that experience in clinical training when we were being sent out for our first day on rounds to deal with death and dying. And didn't know. Oh, God. We were so young and inexperienced. And we expressed our anxiety to the psychiatrist who was our supervisor. He was so wise. And he just looked at us and said, gentlemen, if you're lucky, you'll grow old, get sick and die. That yeah. is, if you're lucky, have a nice day. Yeah, adios. <laughs> and I, yeah. And I, well, I just think about the fact that some of the heroes that I would love to emulate are people like Desmond Tutu, mm -hmm. Nelson Mandela, the Dalai Lama, Mother Teresa, Joan Chittister, these people who have lived with horrific circumstances. And still, when you encounter them, they laugh and smile. Mm -hmm. I you know, both are always at work, our sense of our sense. And that's why I say, you know, on when you just focus on today, I um, there's been a bird nest in our, our, one of our trees outside of Dove, and she hatched two eggs. And just yesterday, they got pushed out of the nest and were being taught to fly. So I've been watching their small flight patterns around my yard. Um, you know, and that that's such a great metaphor, right? The, the mother, I watched her come over to the branch where the little baby was sitting and literally use her wing to kind of shove the baby bird oh. off, the, off the branch. And the baby bird kind of dipped down and then fluttered and flew and landed on another branch, you know? And, and so there's a small joy in, in watching that process. Like life goes on, you know, they're, they're, the birds are chirping. They are still learning to fly. Some will learn well, some will get eaten by the neighborhood cats. You know, like that life does persist and there is beauty all around. There is so much pleasure to take in these small moments like that. And there's also some sense of, of sadness about it when the baby bird doesn't make it, you know, but so yeah, life goes on. Yeah. And how do we take the time to really heal our souls? To really heal these places that are so wounded, so hurting and so alone um, in that grief. And one of my favorite writers, um, uh, Francis Weller, who wrote The Wild Edge of Sorrow, his theory on, on our grief and our inability to deal with death is that we are just so disconnected from that sort of primary source, which for him is the natural world. You call it God, call it whatever, but like we're so disconnected from it. And I think one way to sort of reconnect to it is to do what I accidentally did this morning, which was watch two baby birds learn to fly. We can take time to do those things every day and find some little ways to connect 
back to this source of things go on and on and on and on. Things arise and they fall away. If, if, if I were um, offering spiritual direction for our country right now and for people after sitting in the long period of silence, I would try to get us to focus on what we are grateful for. The people that have taught us, sustained us, gotten us to where we are. Um, just the gratitude that we are able to have a conversation like this and share values. Um, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. All right. I must go. You must go. Yep. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.